or copy of the scriptures to the announced text. When Martha and I were first getting to know one another, it was primarily through phone conversations. And um, we were introduced by mutual friends. And I get, I'm not sure if she did this right after we finally made the first phone call or if she had done it early on and was somewhat prepared for that first call. I don't know. But she went on Sermon Audio and found the one sermon that has been published with my name next to it on Sermon Audio and listened to me. I've never been recorded before that particular time. I didn't know I was being recorded then. Uh, I am being recorded today. Lord willing, all of these wonderful things will um, will work and function well, and we'll be able to, to uh, have it on file. Um, I can tell you honestly, I've not kept very many of my sermon notes because I look at them years later and I think, oh, but nevertheless, that was the cue for the operator to start the, the recording. <laughs> We're looking at Jude, a tiny little letter at the very end, just before the last book, uh, the book of Revelation. Just before it is Jude, and the announced text is verses 1 and 2. I want to add in our reading verse 3. And so with that, if you have found that place in the Bible, a little book of Jude. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Jude, it's funny, on electronic search engines, you have to say chapter 1, <laughs> even though there isn't. Oh, there it is. The Jude 1, 2, and 3. This is God's holy word. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Some of you know that I was an interim pastor here during the summer months on through uh, winter 2014 and into 2015. I had spent most of my professional life overseas in the country of Ukraine. And one thing I noticed when I came back in 2014 was a pervasive sense of, well, I... I don't want to say pessimism in the strongest kind of sense, but certainly there was a great deal of worry. Uh, I noticed, especially among unbelievers, uh, a high sense of anger. And it was startling to me that people would be angry over seemingly slight little things, and there would be shouting. And, and uh, I remember once I was trying to get out of my car in a parking lot. And... Um, I can't help it. There's parking lots seem to be getting more and more cramped, you know. Those, 
And so I was trying to squeeze out of my car without banging my door into the car next to me. And a lady was trying to proceed between our two cars and she got angry at me for being in her way. And uh, that startled me. I said, yeah, I'm trying to move. I'll, I'll get out of your way or something like that. I just was amazed at the anger. I witnessed anger in public places, people shouting at one another. And within the church, I began to notice a kind of a sense of foreboding, a sort of a, of a depressing feeling that the world is not going well at all. Well, that was 2014. Has it gotten any better? You know, nowadays, if you read much in the, in the religious blogs, there are suggestions about how Christians can survive the coming persecution. Right? There, there's all kinds of ideas from, uh, you know, going into the wilderness somehow and forming small communities all the way to we need to be winsome even when the world hates us. And no, now we need to be really aggressive. We've got to preach the gospel in a harsh and hard way and you know, those are things that I'm picking up now as a response to a feeling that doom is soon to be here. And we could almost all put on a sandwich board, repent for the end is near, and, and you know, walk around. And, and sometimes our expression on our face gives the proof that that's what we're fearful of. And certainly there's a great deal of anger. It should not therefore become a surprise to you when I suggest that Jude is making a call for the church to engage in battle. And that's what we have with uh, this little letter. I need to start off with a couple of comments. First of all, I think Jude is a very odd book. Um, for one thing, he quotes a lot of non-biblical sources, like the book of Enoch, for example and uh, Jewish tradition about what happened to Moses after he died and so on. Little things that we just, you know, it's in the book and would be interesting to read, but you wonder where did this all come from? It's an odd book in that regard. But I think the, the main point of what makes it odd to me is the main verb of the book is why I added verse 3. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That's the rallying cry. That's the call of Jude to a beleaguered church to stand and fight for something. And he calls it the, to, to contend for the faith. Now we're going to look at that just for a minute in a minute. But I want to explain why I think this is weird. Because beginning in verse 4, and going almost to the very end, actually all the way to verse 19, he's basically saying the problem I'm, I'm addressing is normal. <laughs> it's the way things are in the church. He describes the people of God struggling against these kinds of things all the time. What kinds of things is he talking about? Well, I think it was obvious to Jude that the external pressures, the things outside the congregation, the, the social and political and uh, those kinds of things outside of the church were coming in against the church. Uh, 
if they weren't being persecuted at that time, persecution really was soon to come. And we know from history that persecution did come. The church was scattered and continued to be scattered. The church went through wave after wave throughout the next three centuries of persecution, where death really was something that was common within the church. But that was all external. Jude is far more concerned to alert the church to an internal problem. He says certain teachers have crept in. I love how our English Bibles uh, soften that up. Um, I almost, this is Mel Pike's translation. Certain false teachers have slithered in. You, you can keep that one for yourself. But they're, they're part of the congregation and they're fomenting false doctrine. But what makes it weird is he says that's normal. And he says their doom is sure. It's echoed in Martin Luther's uh, A Mighty Fortress when he says the doom of Satan is certain. Uh, Jude assures us not only have they been prophesied by Christ and the prophets that this is how it would be, but their end is certain. And you'll start thinking for a minute. Now, the rallying cry is we're to contend. We're to fight for the faith once we're all delivered. But then, why am I fighting? These guys are normal. These guys are part of the church. And their doom is sure. Their effectiveness as teachers is lame. Uh, we're right in the middle of the Perside uh, meteor shower right now. And every night I go out and there's too many clouds. I can't see any, any of those things so far. I'm hoping for a clear night tonight or tomorrow night. But point is, uh, when Jude describes their, their ability to teach uh, in the church, he says they're wandering planets. They're just these obscure blips on the screen. They're not, they're not going to have any effect. Their teaching is like rain clouds that don't have water. And that's something uh, sitting here in Montrose you can kind of appreciate. Because it sure looks like they're all around us, but we never get any of the rain. So why are we called to fight if their doom is sure anyway? What are we to be doing? Well, let's examine that just a little bit. We cannot miss the call to contend for the faith. Well, what is the faith? Um, I can assure you there are many, many books. I have a book, a commentary on Jude by a Puritan by the name of Perkins, and he goes on for almost 100 pages describing what the faith is. Of course, Puritans are really good at that. They can get set, you know, proposition, sub, 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 second point, sub, you know, and they can just keep going, and they'll think of things you never dream of, and he goes on and on. There's no end of it. But I'm going to summarize and ask you to do some homework if you'd like to delve into it a little more. My summary is this, to contend for what the Bible teaches. Or a shorter word would be the truth. We live in a culture that thinks truth is whatever you want to make it. And we're seeing the manifestation of it in the news frequently, even if we don't bump into it actually on the street, though I know that we do. If someone wants to tell you there are many ways to heaven, as long as you're sincere, that's not the truth. And in contending for the faith, we need to stand for the truth and assure the person who thinks that, that Jesus was very clear. He's the only way to the Father. 
no one comes to the Father except through me, he said. That's an example of non-truth being applied, and we need to contend for the faith. We need to contend and stand for truth. And the more ridiculous people are about what truth is, the more firm we need to stand. That's the contending part of what Jude is calling us to do. I remember uh, while still in Ukraine, we had a cable subscription. It was very basic, but there was um, a thing on our remote control that would let us turn off the Russian or the Ukrainian over voiceover so we could hear the original English underneath, which after uh, you know several hours of trying to communicate in another language is kind of nice just to you know watch something. And there was the Travel Channel and this this movie star that I'd never heard of uh, was doing a series of mysteries on Travel Channel, going all around the world to find these unsolved mystery kinds of things. But the teaser for it was always, I want to find the truth, if there is a truth. Like, yeah. Anyway, the more ridiculous somebody's truth assertion is, perhaps today the most profound one is, I can do with my body what I want. I'm in charge. And uh, the Lord is, especially among his people, is very good at uh, exposing the fallacy of that assertion. I'll let you decide and and work through some of those uh, exposures yourself. But that's our main call in this chapter. We are being called to fight for the gospel as it was delivered to the saints once and for all. But I want to look first at the introduction. That's what we announced at the beginning. We find that Jude is a servant, or some versions will use the actual uh, Greek word doulos, or slave, of Jesus Christ and brother of James. And we begin to look at study Bibles and concentrate on who Jude might be. We know there are a number of Judes or Judases mentioned in Scripture. Clearly he's not Judas Iscariot. For that man died uh, prior to the crucifixion of Christ, or at least uh, uh, at, at about the same time as Christ was being crucified. But there are a number of Judes or Judases mentioned in the scriptures. And we find an interesting connection when he says, I'm the brother of James. We look at James and Jude as couplet. It, it appears that Jude and James were both half-brothers growing up in the house of Mary and Joseph, half-brothers of Jesus. Imagine that. We learn from John chapter 7 that none of his brothers believed on him prior to the resurrection. And so Jude now is a faithful follower of Christ. And instead of saying, you know, I grew up with Jesus, and so I can probably fill you in on a few things if you have some questions, What does he do? He says, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. He's bought me. I belong to him. He's my master. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. And now we know to whom he's writing. I'm going to read this as we have it in our our pew Bible. To those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. This is a fairly straightforward 
letter that Jude is writing. It's not complicated. The theology isn't uh, extremely weighty. It, it certainly is solid, and it, it's worthy of our study to know what he is thinking. I mean, if, if Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, can acknowledge the deity of Christ, that's saying something about who he about his knowledge of who Jesus is, uh, but it's fairly straightforward in its grammar and its in, in its language use and so forth, uh, other than those odd references to non-biblical, non-canonical uh, sources. Probably the most complicated sentence is the one I just read. I wanted to read it to you in a. I'm not going to read it in Greek. Please relax. <laughs> But I want to read it to you with the Greek syntax so that you can kind of get a feel for it and, it, and it'll lead us to a, a significant point at the end. It says this in Greek, Jude of Jesus Christ, a slave, and brother of Jacob, to ones in God the Father being beloved, and of Jesus Christ being kept, called. It's interesting, we're going to take these statements of who's receiving the letter in the order that he has placed them in Greek rather than the order that our translator in smoothing the English out has uh, put it for us. So, the first thing he tells about those who are reading, are receiving this letter, are the ones in God the Father being beloved. We live in a world where the word love and its derivatives, the variations of love, such as this word beloved or beloved, we live in a world where those words are virtually emotional, completely devoid of any kind of, of objective, let me say it that way, objective understanding which is interesting because this is a verb here. This is what God does for his people. He loves them. We are called to contend for the faith, and one of the first things we are given as a resource to go into the fight is the knowledge of God's love. I have to be very careful here because I do not want to minimize the fact that there is an emotional component. Um, historian uh, Carl Truman has said that in one of the more recent books he's written, that of course there's emotion. Our bodies are designed for the serotonin and melatonin and all those wonderful hormonal things that wash over um, and, and make us feel good. And so we don't want to minimize the uh, notion that we are loved as though God has, a, I will say, God has a soft spot for his people. He loves you. We learn in Deuteronomy the reason. I, I was fascinated the first time this thing was like a bolt hit me in the head because he says, I have loved you not because you were mighty and strong, not because you were some powerful uh, empire on the earth. I've loved you because I love you. That's God speaking to his people covenantally. So I don't want to eliminate or push away that notion. Please understand that there is an emotional component. But we are so far removed that now a person can love ice cream and the Broncos and you know 
you fill in the blank all the way up to your kids and your spouse. Uh, love just lays over all of those things as synonyms for other things, really. And so I want us to at least elevate to the same level the verb part of this. And I've thought a lot about how in the world would that work. If you have an old King James version of the scripture, first of all, you'll probably say, where's he getting the word beloved? Because <laughs> the old King James or the new King James version say the word sanctified. Sanctified in God the Father. And I'm saying beloved, and you can read in the Pew Bible, and it says beloved. And I won't go into a great deal of, of uh, exe, you know, exegetical work here, but the, the older the manuscript, the fewer mistakes are theoretically possible. And if you were to look at most of the commentaries uh, that use the word, for example, looking at Jude, and they use the word sanctified, they come from the Reformation time. Calvin uh, says there's not that many references to beloved. We know that the word is sanctified. And uh, other reformers, including the one I mentioned, uh, the Puritan uh, early on, they're saying sanctified. Matthew Henry says sanctified. So why are we going back to the idea of beloved? Because some of the much older manuscripts go to the church fathers, go to the pre uh, or the post apostolic age and examine these comments made by the church fathers. Every one of them says beloved. I don't know for sure which one is accurate, but the older the manuscript, the more likely it is that it has fewer errors. And so first of all, I want to say I believe that the word actually is beloved and someday Calvin can correct me and show me my errors. But anyway, we are beloved of God. And what does that mean? Well, again, in the old King James, sometimes the word love is translated charity. And if you've ever, out of the goodness of your heart, provided some, uh, some relief in a charitable organization, whether financial or your time involved or uh, some physical things. I mean, last, last uh, spring when, or uh, early, I guess it was late winter when we did the crates for Ukraine. And uh, there was a place for you to give money if you wanted, but it was, it was a charitable thing that people did is fill these crates of medical supplies that could be shipped to Ukraine. You read the, the so-called love chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and you'll read over and over, love does this, love does this, love does this, and so on. And uh, in the old King James Version, it says charity, charity. And maybe that gets us a little closer to the verb idea of being loved. What I can tell you, and we do need to move on, is that if you are loved by the Father, He loves you as a Father, and that means he provides security and discipline and all of the things that we need to accomplish his purpose in our life, which is, according to Paul in Romans chapter 8, to conform us to the image of his Son. God seeks, according to the writer of Hebrews, that we would be uh, holy. And so the discipline of the Lord, the things he brings to bear in our lives, all of these things come out of his love for you and his desire for you to be holy. 
and we participate in his holiness. So the writer of the Hebrews in chapter 12 says discipline for the moment is not pleasant, but it obtains its ultimate goal, which is our holiness. What an amazing thing. So when we're called into this war, we're called into this battle, we are given resources, and the first resource is that God loves you. And he will do what it takes to make this war an accomplished fact in your life as you go in to the battle, contending for the faith, knowing that you're going in the love of the Father and the provision that the Father gives you. Well, the second thing that then we're given, according to Jude, is he, I think, very carefully under the inspiration of the Scripture uh, of the Spirit, is that we're also being kept in Jesus Christ. We're being kept. What does that mean? I can't help but think in my own mind to Jesus' words in... I should have written this down. I'm going off of memory. I know the verse. I just don't remember. I believe it's chapter 10 where he's talking about being a good shepherd. And he says, my sheep hear my voice and they know me and I know them and so on. And he concludes at the, at the, toward the end of all of that discussion, he says, in reference to his sheep, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. What a promise he's giving to those who follow Christ to know that you're in his hand. You're being kept by him. That's the idea behind this whole being kept is that you're sort of in a garrison. You're sort of in a fortress-like thing and, and nothing can get at you. I saw a little, a little thing earlier. Uh, I don't even know where I found it. It was on Facebook, of course. But... Um, there's a little puppy. You can't even tell. There's a, you just see this dog's legs, and there's something moving between them, and all of a sudden this little puppy pops out, and he looks around, and it's almost like he's saying, come in here and say that. <laughs> you know, I may be tiny, but look who's right behind me. Um, when we're kept in Christ, we have this identity that is given to us by our Father. We have an identity of one who follows Christ, our shortened version of that name is Christian. If you're a follower of Christ, you have been placed by adoption into his family. You have been given a position that C.S. Lewis says is royalty. And he says when you look around and you think of someone that may not be too impressive, be careful. You could be looking at a prince or a princess of the Lord. You don't know their position, but if you're in Christ, you know that you belong to him. Your identity is found in him. You don't have to go find yourself. You are his, and you are being kept. You're being guarded. Your down payment, according to the, uh, Paul in Ephesians, was when you received the Holy Spirit, the assurance that you belong to Christ. And when did that belonging begin? You were chosen by the Father in Christ before the foundation of the world. Before God ever said, let there be light, you were in his mind. If you're a follower of Christ, you belong to Christ. John Bunyan 
writes these words, were saved by Christ, brought to glory by Christ, and all our works are no other way made acceptable to God but by the person and personal excellences and works of Christ. But that is security beyond our imagination. Now, sometimes our circumstances feel like we're alone. Our circumstances feel that God has withdrawn and that somehow we've got to make it all on our own. I know the circumstances that make people feel that way, but the promises of God are that you are in Christ, you are being guarded by Christ, and no one, nothing can take you out of his hand. I think it's very interesting that the, the Greek construction in John 10, 28, when he says, no one can snatch him out of my hand, of course, the proper and, and clear way of saying it in English is exactly how that's written. It's a promise you can hang on to. No one can take, uh, will snatch the, the sheep from my hand. But it's interesting that in Greek, the, the, the sense of that word is you could actually add this notion to it. No one, including yourself, can remove yourself from God's hand. Jesus has you. He is keeping you. So as we think about moving into the battle that we're being called by Jude to follow and to perform and to do, know that we are loved by God and we're kept by Jesus Christ. And nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can separate us from our identity in Christ as Christians. And finally, there is one more thing that I wanted to make sure, the reason I wanted to read the, the text in the, in the Greek syntax is because frequently in Greek, they like to put the most emphatic word on the end. And it's appropriate that our translators put the really emphatic word at the beginning because that's smooth English and that modifies what comes next and we understand it. But in Greek, when they put when Jude writes these words, we are beloved of the Father, we're being kept in Christ, called. When we who are of a reformed stripe truly and genuinely love this word. It is the word that supports our doctrine of election. It's the idea of being chosen. And I already quoted uh, from first chapter of Ephesians that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And we love to think about the doctrine of election as it is described as God making choices and God picking and choosing people. And we are so secure in knowing that we've been called by God. And it becomes part of the, the order of salvation that at some point in our life, if you're a Christian, God called you. He called you before the foundation of the world in the sense of choosing you. And then the day came when you heard the gospel for the first time and you said, that makes sense. I don't mean to put Martha on the spot, but I, I get so emotional when I hear her story because God allowed Martha to be anxious about her soul for, she's never told me the precise number, but a number of months. 
She knew she was in trouble with the creator of the universe and she didn't know what to do about it. And somebody came to her and said, let me talk to you about Jesus. Here's an interesting evangelistic method. He talked about Jesus as if he was real. Isn't that, isn't that great? And I love it when you just expound, expound your relationship with Christ. And she responded. And God converted her through the witness of that person. But that's the call that each of us who follow Christ have heard. We have been chosen. We are part of the called out ones. Our word for church derives eventually, if you go back far enough in the study of, of where the word came from, it comes to ecclesia, the Greek word for the called out ones, the congregation of the Lord. I love that our pastor likes to refer to us as the congregation of the Lord. Um, the called out ones, the assembly, those gathered together in the name of Christ. But that calling also leads us very, very naturally to verse I am going to jump for just a moment past verse 2 because we've been called and Jude under the inspiration of the Spirit is also calling us to contend for the truth, contend for the faith. But it's not an empty call. It's not somebody walking in, hey everybody, let's go down to the park. And going, What's going on? Why, why are we going to the park? But it is someone who's saying, look, we have a battle. It's, a, it's at times very discouraging. People don't want to hear the truth. People would rather invent the truth for themselves, and that's the culture in which we live. But we're being called to move into that battle, to stand for the truth. And we stand for the truth because God will keep us. God loves us. Jesus keeps us. And we're called both by God to be his children and by God to do the work that he has called us to do. So how do we respond to the call? If you thought I was going to go all the way through Jude today, that's another Bible study or three or ten. But we find out at the very end how we are to respond. Jude begins by telling us God keeps us. In a minute we're going to see at the very end that God keeps us. He uses that same word in our application Verse 20, but you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith, pray in the Holy Spirit, and here's the verb, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. God keeps us. God keeps you and me. God is the sustainer behind all that we are to do, all that we attempt to do for him. And in that same vein, then we are to keep ourselves in the love of God. How do we do that? Well, it begins with those, we build ourselves up in our most holy faith. Nobody here needs to be told we should be reading the Bible. And more than reading, we should be studying. And we should, I, I'm glad that we have in, in our prayer time and in our prayer listing so many opportunities to study the scriptures. I told our Sunday school teacher this morning, another substitute, we'll be looking forward to our pastor returning. But in the meantime, it was a great lesson. And I said, 
If you think you should just come to church and not come to Sunday school, you're missing out. Because Sunday school is another place for you to build yourself up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. That's spiritual leadership in your prayer time. By knowing what the Scripture says, we know what to pray. And as the Spirit opens up Scripture to us, we pray in the Spirit to God for the accomplishment of His will. That's how we keep ourselves in the love of God. almost sounds contradictory. We are assured that God keeps us. But we also, in a relationship with the Father who loves us and Christ who sustains us, we keep ourselves by studying and knowing His Word, learning to know Him better, learning to love Him more. And then this marvelous ending to, to Jude's letter. It combines elements of doxology, praise to our God, but it also has a blessing for those whom God loves and keeps and calls. Just listen to this. It's so beautiful. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless. That doesn't get a lump in your throat. I'll tell you what. I don't know what will. He's going to present each one of his sheep to his father blameless. I'm going to start it over. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. What a blessing that we are able to obey our Father because He enables us to belong to Him. He loves us. He keeps us. He calls us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, our words feel inadequate to express what Your Apostle wrote as the Holy Spirit moved Him along. You are so uh, mighty and glorious and wise. And you have condescended to send us your Son to live with us, to breathe our air, to drink our water and eat our food, and live with us without sinning once, without violating your holiness even once, and then submitting to your will so that we could kill him. We, your creatures, presuming to take the life of your son. What audacity. And yet, because you loved us, you have caused that horrific event in history to be the means by which all saints in all eras are able to call you Father are able then to refer to Jesus as our Lord and Savior, indeed our brother, and to rely upon the Holy Spirit to lead us into greater and greater depths of truth as we study your word and as we communicate with you. Thank you for this word this morning. Forgive us for the light touch we have made on such important views. But Lord, as we prepare to commune with you and with one another at your table, 
apply your word in such a way that we would be strengthened in our knees, that our head would be lifted up and our hands would be more and more willing to do the work you've called us to do. Encourage our faith as we move forward in a battle for the truth that you have given us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to invite you to respond.